Student Ministries podcast. We are so happy you are tuning in. This episode, we are continuing our I Have Questions series. Let's listen in as Pastor Dave answers questions regarding the biblical response to LGBTQ plus matters. Uh, so tonight, uh, as Pastor Tony said, obviously this is a, uh, a current issue and it is important uh, for us as believers to uh, deal with this kind of an issue because not only is it something that uh, is part of our culture and the world in which we live in, but as Christians we need to be equipped to think biblically, to think as Christ would have us uh, to view and sort through different issues and, uh, and even further what that means in terms of, of uh, ministry. So uh, tonight uh, is going to be um, definitely uh, uh, a topic with a higher degree of, of difficulty, but Lord willing, uh, we're going to get through it. So issues related to LBGTQ+. The uh, question how it was uh, submitted to Pastor Tony was stated this way. There is evidence that the original Bible was translated incorrectly, intentionally, so that God's word preaches against LGBTQ+. Can this be proven correct? And if so, how does it change the Christian faith? How do Christians move on from the judgment they place on LGBTQ+. All right, so we're going to wade through this a little bit. And uh, um, specifically, the the question when it talks about um, the... uh, uh, claim that there's evidence that the original Bible was translated and so forth. That's something I'm going to deal with when I get to the preservation of Scripture. Uh, so that's something that uh, I'm going to get to a little bit later. But there's there's a a uh, um, an argument that is commonly stated related to the uh, LGBTQ uh, issue and the teachings of Jesus that uh, we're going to look at. Uh, tonight as well. So getting into this, um, one of the things that I want to, and and this is something that is good to kind of just parse out a little bit in terms of critical thinking. And and when I'm talking about critical thinking, I'm not talking about a person just having like this critical disposition where they're negative on things all the time. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about where you're, you're able to analyze things well. That's what I mean by, by critical thinking. And this is something that all of us uh, are challenged with uh, from time to time, no matter what the issue is. Because we're, we're living in not only the information age, but because we're living in the information age, it's becoming more difficult at time to discern what is the truth. It, it's almost kind of like uh, an irony, a tragic irony that we have this huge abundance of information, but yet it can be very difficult to find what is the truth. Uh, And so that's why critical thinking is key. And so one of the things I want to bring up here is that when it comes to the information age, uh, and granted this was true even before we get to, you know, the internet and all this kind of stuff, but there are assertions assertions. And this is different than evidence. 
Assertions can be confidently stated and they can be a reflection of what someone believes. But the key to an assertion being something that is solid is if it's based on truth. It's based on truth. And sometimes assertions can be simply a reflection of a person's preferences or a person's biases. For example, if I make the statement, we all know that Green Bay Packer fans are obnoxious and arrogant. Okay? For those of you who are kindred spirits that are Bear fans, you say, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. For those that are Packer fans, you say, hey, wait a second. I take exception to what you're saying. Okay? Uh, but that would be, you know, kind of a, a silly example of an assertion. All right? So, remember that with assertions, there may be more than you are aware of with an issue. And there's, there's assertions that are just being put out there all the time related to different things. Um, I remember uh, my wife telling me about something that was very troubling, that um, my wife is a, uh, a teacher at a Christian school, and uh, obviously um, she uh, has more freedom in a Christian school in terms of how she teaches and so forth, things like that. And uh, my wife is truly a born-again believer. And uh, there was one time where someone put something on social media and my wife made a comment and she made a comment that she thought was fine, that people wouldn't have a problem with. She had a student, a former student that is, the, the student was no longer at the school, but the student, because they, that person didn't see an issue the way that my wife did, she called into question my wife's Christian faith. Because in her mind, this student, this former student, it was doing this kind of an equation of, if this, then this, therefore that. And because my wife didn't share the same conclusion on something, now she was making an assertion about her Christian faith. Uh, and so assertions, this is, a, this is a minefield. This is a difficult area that has to be waded through. And so when we talk about wading through issues, truth, truth, is most important in sorting through issues. Truth doesn't mean, however, just to say this, truth does not mean there's no opposition. I think sometimes people uh, can get into a, an area of thinking where they may think that, you know, if I'm just able to state the truth correctly, let's say, for example, about my Christian faith, then no one's going to have a problem with it. It's not true. In case in point, and granted, before I move on to the last point, uh, truth doesn't mean there's no opposition, but truth has evidence. And so further, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, did he face opposition? We know he did. 
So the very author of truth faced opposition. And, and it's good for us even to, to just think about this for a moment, because when it, when it comes to following Christ, we will face opposition. Just to say that in general, we will face opposition because there are going to be people who are not on the side of truth. So that's something that is important to keep in mind. All right, so foundational issues. Uh, and, and the reason I brought up the whole assertion thing is, is uh, let me just go back to this because I, I, um, uh, I want to make sure that um, I'm not being confusing here. Um, the, the question that was submitted, because, uh, and, and I know I don't have to convince you guys of this, that I'm old, okay? You know, I know you're thinking, yeah, you know, Pastor Dave, somewhere in Genesis, I think, is when he was born. But uh, anyway, um, but reading this, I know from the, the wording of this, that this was basically a reflection of something that has been heard. And what has been heard is advocating an assertion. That's what it's putting forth. And that's why that's what I wanted to talk about just the nature of, of assertions. All right, so foundational issues. Where do we go to gain knowledge and truth that is from God? And there's two primary sources when we talk about knowledge of God, okay? Uh, natural revelation, and this is basically how God is known and understood by what he has made. And then there's special revelation, and special revelation basically has two main uh, areas. One is the scripture, and the other is the person of Jesus Christ, okay? Those are two uh, two areas of special revelation. So these all give us knowledge of God and how we are to understand reality. And reality is what is true. All right, so I want to just deal with this question. <clears throat> and this is actually, uh, even though it sounds like such a simplistic question, this is actually an important question in terms of just gaining uh, the framework for sorting through uh, an issue like the LGBTQ question. And the question is, is there any sexual behavior that is wrong? Or does anything go? And hopefully you know the answer to that. That yes, there is certain sexual behaviors that are wrong. And the key issue here is, is this determined by culture or is this determined by God who defines and frames reality? That's what we're after. Because the culture can move in all kinds of different ways. And the culture, sadly, doesn't always reflect righteousness. Uh, you know, and you think about just uh, one of the, the hot button issues in our day today uh, when it comes to abortion. Um, you have what different people in our culture say, but what's most important is well, what does God say about this? 
So how do we understand, determine, and differentiate what is right and wrong? And obviously, what is foundational is then the Word of God and, and what God has said on sexual behavior. So we need God's truth. So God's perspective, he defines reality and sexual morals. He holds people accountable. And this is something, um, I think I said this in my last talk, and and if I did, it bears repeating. If I didn't, um, here it is. Um, There was a... uh, uh, well, he's still alive, excuse me. Peter Hitchens, he, he is uh, the brother of the late Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens is a pretty well-known atheist who died of cancer. And his brother Peter, who's a believer in Christ, uh, one of the statements that he made, which was just a, a great statement in terms of even uh, coming back to this whole issue of accountability, he, he made a statement where he said, if there is no ultimate accountability, our lives don't count. So if you think about accountability, we, we can usually look at that in a negative sense. You know, like, you know, we're always being watched and, uh, and we're going to be, you know, called out when we come up short kind of thing. And granted, you know, that, that's part of it. But, but what Hitchens, Peter Hitchens is further underscoring is that because our lives have meaning and purpose, and because our lives have a power to them, because we've been created in the image and likeness of God, and how we live matters, the very fact that we will be held accountable reinforces that those things are true. It reinforces that our lives really are lives that matter. And so this obviously relates to many issues, but specifically tonight with the issue of sexual behavior. Thankfully, when we talk about God's perspective, we understand that he has provided the way of redemption in life through Jesus. Praise God for that, because if, if, that, if that didn't happen, we're all lost. We're all lost. And it doesn't matter what particular sin issue it is, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so thankfully, there is a way of redemption. And so then as Christians, if we are redeemed by Christ, we should affirm what God has revealed. Let's look at some scriptures uh, because we need to look at what the scripture says uh, because I've been advocating that obviously that's one of the ways in which we understand and discern truth. So we need to look at some scriptures, in particular scriptures that deal with sexual behavior and specifically homosexual behavior. So we're going to look at these scriptures and then later when I get to the preservation of scripture, is where uh, that's going to deal with the uh, issue of if the scripture's ever been changed, uh, if it's ever been uh, somehow uh, changed to specifically um, speak against a certain issue even though it didn't do that in the beginning, okay? Uh, We're gonna deal with that 
uh, a little bit later on. But let's look at some text as to what the scripture has to say. So Romans chapter 1 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Then 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Flip side, is there any sexual behavior that is right? Yes. And specifically, Scripture gives us that context. The sexual behavior that is right is the sexual behavior between a husband and wife with each other as they are bound in marriage. That is the sexual behavior that is right. Has there been an intentional mistranslation of Scripture? Sorry for the typo. Has there been an intentional mistranslation of Scripture? <laughs> Forgot the of. You look at this again and again, and I missed it. Sorry about that. All right, so has there been? Answer is no. The arguments are not consistent nor based on the fundamental rules of language, grammar, and context. This can be demonstrated, and like I said, I'm going to get to this uh, in a moment with the issue of the preservation of Scripture. Now, uh, before we get to that, let's look at one argument that is asserted. This is a common argument that is asserted when it comes to the issue of LGBTQ+. And the argument is that Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. And so when you look into the Gospels, we don't have Jesus specifically calling out the sin of homosexuality. But does that mean that Jesus would think that that kind of sexual behavior is fine? 
This argument is advanced to try to say that Jesus didn't view homosexuality as a sin, which is built on an assumption that Jesus would have called out everything that is sin. And so if he didn't call out something, then it is not. But according to author Joe Dallas, let's play that logic out. Jesus didn't mention wife beating. Would it be right to conclude that Jesus wouldn't consider wife beating to be sinful? I'll let you answer that in your mind. And so this argument is not a good argument because it's simply saying that in order for us to identify anything as being sinful, we have to identify every single thing that Jesus called out as sin, and if he left anything out of that list, then it's a-okay. And so that is a, a uh, faulty line of reasoning. Uh, the source in terms of, uh, you can see it on the second paragraph there, the source is the Complete Christian Guide to Understanding Homosexuality, edited by Joe Dallas and Nancy and by the way, um, one of the handouts I'm going to give you tonight is uh, some suggested resources if you want to do some further reading. Um, so there's some good things that are out there. Uh, so I'm going to have that for you. Statement by Jesus Christ. And so here's where even though he doesn't specifically use the word homosexuality and call it out as sin... We do see Jesus making statements about sexuality. And he goes back to the very design of creation that we see in Genesis. And specifically, um, he was answering a question related to uh, divorce. Uh, but here's, here's what's further in, included in that whole discussion. So Jesus underscored God's design for gender, sexual behavior, and marriage when he quoted from Genesis and recorded from the Gospel of Matthew. So we have this direct statement from Jesus. And Pharisees uh, came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So here's Jesus' answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All right, preservation of Scripture. Getting into this topic, one of the things I'm going to circulate uh, around, and I need this back, if you would be so kind to return it, um, is that uh, one of the things that had to have happened in order for us to have copies of the Bible today is that the scripture had to be preserved through copying. One of the things that uh, I don't have to convince you about is that 2,000 years ago, they didn't have computers and they didn't have copy machines. Everything had to be hand-copied. Not only that, when you go back in history, in terms of what people wrote on, uh, the things that they wrote on uh, over time could become very brittle, and so it would deteriorate. And so the copying had to continue 
so that even if other previous copies deteriorated, they still had more copies from which they could use and draw from. And so one of the things that was written on in the past was papyrus. And this is actually where we get the word paper. Uh, papyrus is a reed-like plant that you'll find, uh, for example, near the Nile in Egypt. And it's like a, a stalk that grows up out of the ground. And uh, what people in the past did was they would take this uh, reed and they would cut it long ways in strips. And then they would take those strips and they would weave them together like almost like a basket weave. And then they would smash the uh, cut reeds to bring the pulp out and it would cause it to stick together. And then they would dry it in the sun and then they could cut it into little pieces and lo and behold, you have an ancient form of paper. And so I'm going to uh, pass this around so you can see it. And you can see the uh, weave uh, in the papyrus. And then this would be what would be written on with an uh, ancient type of pen. So let that circulate around. And so copying was something that was very uh, important and key, and obviously in the sovereignty of God, uh, copying is what God did in terms of, of uh, human people uh, copying things um, for us to be able to look back on it and with confidence know that the Bible that we have today was the Bible that was originally written. And uh, these manuscripts then are what we can look at to examine to see if there's any changes that have been made to the Word of God. So I'm going to circulate this handout, and we're going to look at this a little bit together. All right, hopefully everyone's got a handout. Uh, this handout, the table here, uh, I pulled this uh, off of the web, and you can see the, uh, the online address, and this was uh, posted in an article titled, Where the New Testament Manu Were, Excuse Me, The New Testament Manuscripts Copied Accurately. And uh, the article is by Joseph Holden, Holds a PhD. You can see the date of the article, and it was from the website calvarychapel.com. Now, let's look at this uh, handout uh, so that we can um, uh, talk about what this is communicating. So, if you look in the left hand column, you see uh, different names of people in history. So, at the top, you've got Plato, you've got Homer. Herodotus, uh, you've got other big uh, $10 names here, Julius Caesar, Tacitus, and then you get to the Greek New Testament. 
So we've got these people from history, and we know that they wrote some different things that have been recovered uh, historically. And so you've got the, the source itself, and then you get to the date of the original. And what this is basically uh, saying is, about what time frame were the originals written? Okay, that's the date of the original. The next column is, when it comes then to a copy, a copy that has been recovered, what is the earliest date of that manuscript? What's the earliest date? And so when you compare the earliest manuscript that's been recovered to the time frame of the date of the original writing, that's where you get to the next column in terms of what kind of a gap then do we have between when the original was written and the earliest recovered manuscript that we have. How many years have gone by between when the original was written and the recovered earliest copy that we have? Then you get to the last column, which is how many manuscripts have been recovered? How many copies have been recovered? And you can see the numbers there. So when it comes to these particular writings, for example, example you think of Homer's Iliad, right? Uh, you've got a gap of almost 500 years between when he originally wrote the Iliad and the earliest manuscript that's been recovered that was copied to preserve Homer's Iliad. And then in terms of how many manuscripts have been recovered of Homer's Iliad, there's a little bit over 1,800 of those. So pretty good for Homer's Iliad, okay? And then uh, when it comes to uh, other ancient writings, you can see the numbers there that the majority of the numbers are pretty low compared to Homer's Iliad. What I want you to see is when you go down to the manuscript copies of the Greek New Testament, how many manuscript copies of the Greek New Testament that we have compared to the other ancient sources? A lot. A lot. And just to even frame the issue this way, okay? If you were sitting in a history class and you were to ask the professor teaching history, you would say, do we have confidence that we know exactly what was originally written by Plato in the dialogues? The professor would probably look at you and say, absolutely. That's kind of a silly question. Why are you even asking that? Ironically, and this shows people's bias or their antagonism toward Christianity. If you were to ask certain professors, or probably more the case, college students, can we be confident that the New Testament that we have today is exactly the original New Testament that was written by the authors of the New Testament? 
What's sad is because so many people have bought into things that have been asserted over time. You will probably get people who will say, you know, I, yeah, I kind of doubt it. The Bible's been changed. There's so many different versions. All this kind of stuff. When we look at the evidence, though, when we look at the evidence, the evidence tells us a whole different story. That the manuscript evidence that we have is incredible. And if you'll notice that when it comes to the manuscripts and the gap of time between the earliest copies that have been recovered and the time frame from which the original documents of the New Testament were written, you've got a short period of time. A short period of time. Why is that important? The reason a short period of time is important is what often can happen, what can creep into historical documents is that the wider the gap is between the original and the copy, the likelihood of someone changing things becomes greater. But if the gap is shorter, that limits that possibility. But not only that, because of the amount of the manuscripts that have been recovered, what historians can do is they can look at a manuscript from the late first century, they can look at the same book of the New Testament from a copy that was copied in the second century, and so on, and they can compare these and they could look at, has anything changed at all? Has anything changed? And from the manuscript evidence then, there is the confidence that historians, as well as we in more particular, as Christians, because we have a very vested interest in this, because we want to have confidence that we have the word of God, and thankfully, thankfully we can have that. It's not just on a wish or some kind of sentiment because we want it to be the case. We have the manuscript evidence that we can be confident that the word of God has been preserved accurately so that even if we don't have the actual first draft letter of the book of Romans that the Apostle Paul authored, even if he had a scribe do the writing while he told them what to write, even if we don't have that first draft, which is called the original autograph, we know that we have exactly the content of the book of Romans preserved for us because of all of the manuscript evidence. And so that's what this chart is further bearing out. Now, notice further when you look at the numbers. The Greek, Testament, the Greek New Testament, why is this important? Because the original New Testament was written in Koine Greek. You get to the next column below that. There were other New Testaments that were copied and translated into other languages. And those can then be translated from whatever language that is. Let's say it's Syriac. And then see if there's been any substantial change whatever in what that New Testament is saying compared to the Greek New Testaments. 
And so when it comes to those other languages, notice the number. There's over 18,000 of those. So when you add that together with the Greek New Testaments, when it comes to manuscripts, we have 24,000. There should be a plus there. Uh, 24,000 plus. And so uh, then it gets, it gets into the uh, Old Testament scrolls. Uh, and so when we talk about total biblical manuscripts, we've got 66,000 plus. And so these all are the evidence that is available that can be examined to see was there anything that was written in the Bible at one point in history that people then later changed? And because of the manuscript evidence, we can find out that no, it hasn't. The only time when you uh, encounter something that asserts itself to be a Bible, but where there are changes, is where you have something goofy going on. And let me give you an example. Has anyone ever heard of what is called the New World Translation? Anyone ever heard that? The New World Translation specifically is the translation that is put forward by the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses, because they deny the deity of Christ, they intentionally mistranslated the opening verse in John's gospel that says the word was God and the word was with God and so forth. They mistranslate it to say that the word was a God lowercase g because they deny the deity of Jesus. There's no Greek scholar that agrees with the New World Translation. And so not only do the manuscripts undermine what they assert, but even in terms of the Greek language itself and people who know the Greek language and the features of grammar and how things should be translated know that what they did in the Gospel of John is completely wrong. So that's where you can encounter some of those kind of goofy things. And um, I was trying to do it from memory, but let me just read this to make sure that I get it correctly out there to you. Further uh, underscore what I'm trying to point out. So in John chapter 1, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's where the New World Translation intentionally changes that to say, and the Word was a God. All right, so this chart, very important when we talk about dealing with the question of has the Bible ever been changed? The answer to that is no. No, it hasn't. And so going back then to that original uh, issue or point that was raised, 
we can then answer that it has not. There is no evidence for that. So conclusion and resources. There is no evidence that the original Bible was translated incorrectly intentionally so that God's word preaches against LGBTQ+. This can be proven correct and the true and biblical Christian faith is unchanging. Notice what I said there, the true Christian faith. Because there are people who profess to be Christians who end up changing Christianity all the time. It's sad. Cults, as I talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, that's just, that's just one example. Mormonism, that would be another. Christians need to be discerning, making right judgments, and affirm the teachings of Scripture. Issues related to LGBTQ plus can be challenging to deal with, but the gospel is always the way forward. Culture is always changing. God and his word are unchanging. Remember what Jesus said, talking about the word. Never pass away. Never pass away. All right, I want to show, uh, hopefully you've got the hot link on the uh, screen there, Isaac. Hopefully you have the hot link. Um, I want to show you a quick clip from a documentary. I'm not going to show you much, but I just want you to see uh, just a little bit of this documentary. And hopefully it's going to work. That, um, that documentary is, um, you'll understand more of what's going on if you watch it. Uh, that documentary is available if you Google in his image. 
okay? And I would encourage you to watch that documentary um, because it is something that deals very thoroughly with uh, the issues that are happening in our culture uh, from a Christian and biblical perspective. So that's something I want to resource you with, okay? All right, here we go. So, when we talk then about the gospel, obviously when we talk about the gospel from the New Testament and Jesus' ministry, that the gospel is for everyone. For everyone. First, obviously, the problem. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Here's the good news. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whosoever, another typo, wow, I'm really, I'm, I'm showing the uh, contrast between the, uh, the inerrant word of God and how errant I am. Um, all right, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And uh, so Jesus welcomes whoever will turn from their sins to him in faith. So the gospel is for everyone. Now, some recommended books. So here's another handout I want to give you here. And, and by the way, I just want to say this, all right? I would ask strongly, that you would either read one of these books or watch the documentary. Hopefully, maybe you'll do both, reading one book at least and watching the documentary. But, but I would strongly encourage you to do that because we have to be responsible as Christians in terms of when we talk about being salt and light in the world and uh, being ready I'm not saying that we're always going to have all the answers, okay? But, um, but there is a level of, of responsibility because, as Paul says, we are entrusted with the gospel. So uh, here's a, a list of some books here. This is not comprehensive by any way. I've only got four titles. But um, anyway... One of the authors on this uh, list, uh, Christopher Yuan, we actually had the, uh, the privilege of having him speak here uh, a number of years ago at Maywood. Uh, we had a, uh, a conference on biblical sexuality, so it was really cool to have Christopher Yuan here. He is a professor at uh, Moody Bible Institute. So did either one of you have classes with him or both of you? You did? Good. Good. No? Yeah, the author of that book you got, yeah. Yeah, I don't have that book on the list, but yeah, same guy. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for your attention. And um, 
I'd like to uh, just close in prayer, if I may. So let's close. Well, Father God, we thank you that you meet us at our greatest point of need, which is that without Christ we are lost because of our sin. And uh, God, I pray that you would further help us to be the ambassadors that we need to be as our culture definitely is a vehicle that communicates lies of the enemy. And so many people are being deceived. So many people are being further galvanized in their unbelief. And God, in the midst of that, you've called us to be salt and light for you. And so help us, help us to do that. And these things we ask and pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to the Maywood Student Ministries podcast. We hope that this episode encouraged and strengthened you in your walk with the Lord. See you on the next episode.